This week on FX Guide TV. We look at a fun spot done by Injun in Sydney and talk to the bakery about the importance of lighting tools. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and we have a fun show for you this week. We're looking at TVC production with Engine in Sydney and lighting workflow with the bakery in France. Here in Australia, Engine Design recently completed a fun spot for local telco, Telstra. And we spoke to Engine about not only the complex post, but also the elaborate onset gadgets that were built to pull off as much as possible in camera. Whether you Facebook on the 442, build stairways to heaven, have maximum fun in a minivan, follow the big stories and the small ones, or just say hey from a million miles away. Experience the Motorola Zoom on Australia's most reliable mobile network. So I'd worked out the moves in my head and how it might happen. Um, and then I worked a heck of a lot with um, our effects uh, supervisor, Scotty Wilcox, who very quickly uh, pre-visited in 3D. And then we, we kind of pulled and pushed over the timings and how things would move and where they would go. And then, of course, after a day, we had it off pat, so we were very happy with ourselves um, until we went to speak to the production designers and set builders who, of course, deal with gravity and mass and slidey, frictiony things, which we didn't deal with so much. Uh, and um, then kind of reality set in. Um, so we had lots of things that didn't happen in the commercial, like the car seats that the mum and dads were sitting on were actually going to be bolted to the back of the rotating walls. So it'd be like, uh, there's a scene, I don't know if you ever watched Live and Let Die as a kid, right. the Roger Moore Bond film, there's a scene where he's in some Harlem uh, drinking establishment yep. and the wall kind of fl flips around and then he's suddenly in the baddie's den. And I had that in my head for, <laughs> for how the mum and dad came in, this kind of rotating wall seats bolted. But it, you know, there's no way that could have been done for weight reasons and, or we would have had to have built the strongest wall known to man. So. <laughs> I'm curious also with, in terms of the client, because you must have had a really good client, because the thing that we hear about time in, time out is people won't make a decision until the last minute. But if somebody at the end of this commercial said, yeah, I think we should swap the order of these two scenes, you'd be like, like in a normal commercial, no problem, right? But in yours, it was it would have been impossible. a jigsaw puzzle. We had um, a really great agency, but they also had a Telstra, the client on their end who we dealt with all the time and who DDB dealt with, and was just very gung-ho about the whole thing was really, let's just make it amazing. You know, you just go and do it, and we love the idea. And Because we, we took the brief from DDB and, and tried to move very quickly on it to put boards together fast. So I worked with our storyboard artist, Josh, and we got them boards by the next morning, and then they had the meeting with the client, and the client apparently got it very quickly. Oh, yeah, okay, and I was surprised by that, that they got it. I thought I'd at least have to go in and, and show to the, you know, the, the agency and the client again, but they got it. I mean, from an advertising point of view, it, it sort of ticks two huge boxes. One is it's intriguing, so you actually get a level of engagement, which is terrific, because otherwise you can't sort of communicate the message. But I think the second thing is you've got a spot that by its design has the product front and centre for... Mm. It's like one giant pack shot. <laughs> I actually would love to do something very similar again with no product at all. But actually, that's a, it's a silly thing to say, because... The story is around it. It's a, this pair of hands. Uh, the, the point of view is the camera, the, the, um, 
the user's point of view, and the world is kind of seamlessly moving from one thing to the next as a kind of an echo to the uh, seamlessness of the, of the next G network. That was the pitch from my point of view was, okay, if we just do cuts, it's expected. It's, um, there's nothing there which is going to challenge the viewer. And also, to transition in beautiful, interesting ways you know, is, is a nice metaphor for the seamlessness of your network. And, and it is so complex, it actually encourages repeat viewing. Because whereas normally there would be a gag, and I've yeah. got the gag, so that ads on again, I don't need to watch it because I got that gag. Yeah. Here it's like, oh, there comes the ad, I can now watch it again to try and work yeah. out what they did this time. Well, I, 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 th I honestly think that I'm really bad at throwing out ideas. I, I fall in love with ideas and, and like to keep as many of them in as I can. And, um, I did a short film of a seven or eight years ago called What Barry Says, which is typographic and 3D and looked like a kind of uh, constructivist war poster that moved and changed. And a lot of people who saw that the first time were like, we liked it, but it was so quick. You know, we can't, we're going to have to watch this three more times to actually get it. And I sometimes wonder in myself if that's a good or a bad thing that I do, if putting too many things in, leaving too many things in. Um, as I go forward, I think I'll probably do some more minimal things and, and, and work it just around one idea more. But for now, I'm still in this place where I, I, I love to, I, I kind of trust that an audience will hopefully want to engage with the, the piece again, you know, be it for a commercial or be it in a film format, and get more out of it the next time around. So tell me about what was happening on set. So what were you shooting on and what did you sort of have to line up on, I guess? Um, well, we, there was a lot of work in um, Wild Sets in Botany in terms of the de uh, decisions for camera angle, for horizon line that obviously we had to kind of um, imagine because the sets were being built. Um, so I worked with uh, the owner of engine, Calvin Gardner, in the first instance, and he and I um, went down and, and uh, took lenses down. We shot on the red, um, but we went down looking through different lenses, just kind of strapped onto a 5D, took some shots. These were in the really nascent sets, just right at the beginning when it was just poly, you know, poly boards and things that they were putting up for us to imagine and you know, imagine the scale of things. Um, and then we kind of decided on, okay, what, what lensing would work right, which kind of stayed around an 18, I think. And really, I think the final shot, which is out in Centennial Park, where we, they built, we built this big cafe um, which, on runners that the, the three guys pushed across. Um, that was the point where we knew where, where our horizon line would be. It's like, okay, that's where it's going to be. We need it to be there because then get the camera here because the railing is going to sit there and that works nicely with the edge of the lake. And did you film it in chronological order as it played out, or did, did it not matter? Because no, no, we, we, we because we had it strongly prevised. It actually worked better because we had the we had the Centennial Park shot first. And the reason why I laugh is because it was a dreadful fort. I mean, there was such a tight timeline on this commercial. It was like five and a half weeks from go from the agency to finishing and delivering. And it really was an eight-week job. Uh, in, in every single way, it was an eight-week job. We'd done it in five and a half weeks. Nearly killed our lead flame artist. I mean, he's still bearing the scars mentally, if not physically. But... Um, the three hours that we got in Centennial Park was uh, on the Friday, um, it's a fortnight before we delivered, was the only three hours of sun or anything like sun that were within like 21 days. So we're very lucky. So it was the last shot first and then we were into the studio to, um, 
to get the shots, the transitional shot from the bus to bedroom, and then to uh, get the second uh, rig, which was the, car, the whole car rig, which was really amazing what they built, these hacking a car to pieces, putting on this rig, which would move this way, move that way, and rotate at the same time. So, <laughs> so when you came off set that last day, how mm. long was it in edit? Because was the edit process almost a fait complete, or did, was there a... Mm. No, it wasn't. It, it, we, we did so many takes, especially on the car. Um, so we had a lot of material to go through. Um, and with the hand shoots as well, uh, which we green screened in the engine studio, we had the, the tablet on a rig, and we had a lot of different options with that. So there was loads of stuff to go through, and then we worked overnight uh, to get the offline together. The client came in on the Saturday morning, which was the then six days before we delivered, to approve the, the hand shoot, and approve the whole offline, and then it was just go, 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 go. So you direct in your own right, mm. but on this particular campaign, you are taking more of a role as a supervisor, as I understand, yeah. correct? Yeah, well, um, other than directing at Engine, I am the in-house VFX supervisor. So I cover all of that as well as then directing my own gigs as well. Right, because I say one of the things you and I have really seen is that move where any concept of post coming after production is really gone, that you really need to be at the front of the process. And in fact, you were also, I believe, steering the previs on this. Yeah, and what was really, I guess what was really fun and big boys toys on this was that um, making something in 3D, but then going to a great big warehouse in Botany and people are cutting bits of wood and making real size, not scale, things with wheels and that people would push and that we'd be in the computer deciding where the hinges and pivot points would be and then going and seeing that and um, a number of times changing where they'd already built physical things, which I felt like one of those clients coming and changing things at the last minute. Because um, your background is 3D. You, yeah. You started there. Yeah, 20 right? so years or something, um, which is incredible considering I'm only 20. Exactly. Um, well, it, it means that I can cut through a, a really rough previs in a hurry. So, um, and um, get that to a point where I'm getting that in front of Simon to say, you sure that's what you want? Because so. if you're talking about, like, say, four sets in a 30-second commercial or something, it doesn't sound too bad. If you have to rebuild the sets between each uh, scene, as it were, then you've got some real concerns. You're just going to literally run out of time to get everything swung. And then also, I presume, real issues about just physical inertia, like you just can't slam mm. a car in and stop it on a dime. That's right. That's right. At some stage, we were to toying with the idea of shooting the car part in reverse so that the performance of the people would be right, but then we started thinking about how that would be affected and blinks might look strange, and so threw that out, and there was all sorts of toing and throwing about how to go about things, and ended up going, you know what, it's gonna be, just pre-visit, I'm just gonna sit here and get a, a cheap old 3D bus and slice it up and cut it in bits, and then I took that on a laptop to the set builders and said, how are you going about it, you know, I can see how I had to do this and do that, and they said, yeah, we had to do that and do that too, and so then those two ends sort of come together. And Engine's got a really good team, so normally you could be on set and say, look, I understand that's a problem, we'll just fix it later. But in this sense, you actually had to have a lot of stuff really working, because mm. even if you could rely on your team as you could, you didn't have days up your sleeve to do a lot of fixes. That plus the timing sort of meant we can't really use 3D as a safety net. Can't be going, you know what, we could fix that with this and fix that with that in terms of 3D stuff because we're going to have to build it, rig it, light it and match it to live action that's already set in place. So um, 
yeah, it wasn't really conducive to making it any fix-ups in 3D. It had to be an in-camera thing, and Simon wanted it real and in-camera. So, but without the but it's like a big chunk of compositing. So uh, there was lots of cleanup, right? Lots of cleanup, and also lots of unknowns about what was going to car pieces of car coming together. What was going to reflect? We could sort of guess, um, and we sort of had a plan of, you know, the sun's up there. What sort of time of day is it? And Peter Menzies Jr. sort of set that, you know, we're going to have the the sun's sort of low so that we're getting a nice highlight hitting the top of everything and it gives it a bit of a dynamic there. So then that set the time of day and so then that sent us down the path of when we're shooting in Centennial Park and um, and told us a little bit about where we might expect to see anomalies that we wanted to fix or get rid of. But And one of the things I noticed in this ad was really nice is that quite often when you do a composite sequence like this, you get a very unrealistic balance between interiors and exteriors. And it seemed like you had a really good feel uh, for those comps. So mm. obviously somebody was fighting the resisting temptation to just see everything. Everything, everything beautifully exposed. Yeah. Outside and inside, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that was sort of set from that rule one of, I want to, Simon saying, it has to look like it's in camera. But some of those were green screen shots. I mean, that you were yeah. completely doing those. Yeah, well, the outside the bus. Yeah. Outside the bus is all um, green. And that shot in particular also seems to have an atmospheric in the bus that yeah. was introduced that was nice. Yeah, we just sat there and analysed the hell out of it once we had the footage and, and the background plate to go what, what works and um, disturbingly doing dangerous driving by during that post-process driving my car along and watching the ceiling of my car for what happens with the light. You didn't jump in a bus with a camera? No, I should have done that, but okay. other people did. Right. And um, watch various things, but um, we're just getting to the point of analysing the how... Because there's a kind of glare in that bus that's nice. Yeah, there's the one from the sun. Yeah. But then there's light, in the... light passing around. Well, there's the air. Yeah. That's one of, my, um, one of my pets to put air in there. It's kind of like you put plankton under the water. Yeah. Um, it really works well in that Dust shot, and air and um, uh, I think the example of where I set that as a rule was in Matrix 1 when they're fighting in the, towards the end in the train station yeah. and it goes to live action, live action, photogrammetry room spinning around and there's just, there's no air. And, and so it is the only element that's missing from that looking convincing so we pump it all in there now yeah. and there's various little effects reels at engine that have dust going this way. Oh, so you, you didn't do that, that as, as a sort of a 3D volumetric thing, you actually just shot some stuff and comped it in? On, on existing libraries. Right. Um, there is atmosphere in there and not only the rule number one of it has to look like it was in camera, but also at every stage when a scene is formed that it looks like it, it's just there. And the, the transitions tell you something funny's going on here, but when you're formed, that you look at it and go, it's a believable it's real scene. So we analysed each one that way. And in terms of the exposure inside and outside, yeah, it's, it's sort of a bit darker on the inside and a bit overexposed outside to get that realistic balance happening. But then, especially towards the end when the car disassembles and goes to the park, that there's a sense of iris pull on a lot of things and that there's the light blooming around the edge of the car so that it feels like that we were in, we're sort of semi-interior on the car, but then we go to full exterior and beautiful sunny day, the light's going to be pumping in, so. Now on this project, you weren't doing After Effects, right? You did no. most of that in, uh, in no. Flame? 
yeah, all of the final comps were. But I was working for just doing the previews. I was working in my um, programs of choice, which are um, just due to speed of knowing in the hotkeys, being able to fly through it. Really. Muscle memory. Yeah, XSI. Um, even in amongst the room full of Mayans and Cinema 4D designers, I'm the lone, and still the lone softer marger. Increasingly, we've seen a shift to want to improve productivity in lighting by speeding up the responses to the artist, rather than trying to speed up renders. Enter the bakery, which has an end-to-end -end solution for interactive lighting design. And here's Mike Seymour, who recently spoke to them at SIGGRAPH. So tell me about what you're doing with the product because you're both doing very interesting relighting but also actually providing an end render solution, is that right? Yeah, correct. Actually, we're trying to, to change the paradigm that exists today on the market. Today on the market, what you have is on one hand software like uh, Maya, Softimage, XSI, 3ds Max. On the other hand, you have a render engine. But render engines are just that. They are render engines. They are not tools that helps you uh, light or relight your thing, your, your scene, your shots. And the thing is, it's quite slow. As soon as you start to do very sophisticated uh, lighting on big scenes, what you do is you have your big scene in your big software. You push a button, then you go and go on Facebook and uh, whatever, and you wait for the result. So the problem is the artistic iteration is about changing something, seeing the result, and tweaking it. But here the tweaking takes forever, for hours, while our approach is to say uh, we have to end that. We have to have a feedback, give uh, immediate feedback on the real final quality image. Uh, so the way we do it, uh, which is really new in, in our technology, is we're able to, when you deal with a big database, with fur, with global nation, with a town, with billions of polygons, what we're able to do is we are able to identify what has been already computed and we avoid to recompute it. We just recompute what you have changed. Uh, so we have a uh, patented technology on that and uh, it, actually it works. So uh, I'll give you a very simple example is let's say, that's the simplest you can have. Let's say you have a scene with 20 lights. If you are changing one light, theoretically you have to recompute only one twentieth of a, of a computation. That's what we do. We detect what needs to be changed. Actually, uh, with our technology, it will be one hundredth of, really? of a thing because we already pre-computed uh, geometry complexity, uh, things like that. So, I, as a user, can actually set up various point clouds that I can use for various operations. Is that part of that process of producing a more efficient workflow? Oh, actually, we we we. We speak a lot about point clouds because this is hype, but, uh, but actually we use all the technology that has been around for the last 20 years plus new technologies. So we use point clouds with uh, uh, what we call spherical harmonics, which is very trendy to use. Yes. Uh, well, for example, uh, Weta on their work uh, with spherical harmonics, they actually have a large pre-computational stage that's done beforehand, and actually they use GPUs for that. Is that the sort of approach you're using? Yeah, actually we have exact same approach, same kind of techniques. We don't use GPU, there are reasons for that. First thing is we can't do everything. And the second thing is our point cloud technique is much sparser than what you would get on the market. So actually we can get the same result without using hundreds of millions of points. So one thing, so we can do it with CPU. And the problem with GPU 
is uh, unless you are a big company which can afford to have a GPU on the on the farm, uh, what you what we want to be sure is we guarantee that whatever is your machine, Windows, Linux, whatever is your uh, a graphic board, you'll get the same result. The GPU is a pain in the ass because you need to be sure you have the same drivers, the same GPU everywhere, and it's it's kind of a it's kind of problematic. But we you are just have a little bit of GPU at the bottom, sort of yeah, just to do a bit of kind of on-screen. No, no, we're we're using a little bit of GPU, but a really minimal amount. We want to be sure that whatever you get on screen is the thing you'll get on the render farm. That being said, we're gonna go full throttle. Uh, just in the next month on a GPU accelerated uh, pre-computation of point clouds and retracing and things like that. But this is really, at this point, we really wanted to guarantee to our clients the fact that they will get the same result, whatever machine, whatever power, whatever farm they have. So your philosophy in terms of producing the end renderer means that I would actually complete the job with your renderer. But most of your clients at the moment, I believe, are primarily producing fully CG in sort of, as a nature of their business, not exclusively, but that's kind of what they're doing. Um, I'm wondering if I wanted to go into a nuke pipeline for compositing, I'm, I'm producing a line and putting them in live action footage. Uh, I guess I can export into or cross-convert to OpenEXR or something, because yeah. you your own format, right? Yeah, I mean, we use our own format for uh, a performances reason. So because we have access to it, we can streamline, we can optimize it, but we can, uh, as like all the other renders, we are able to provide AOVs, arbitrary output variables, where you can actually export as many layers you want and uh, do all the compositing you want. If you want EXR, if you want TIFF, if you want TGA, it's, uh, it's really up to you. But the thing is, with our software, most of the compositing work you would do, you won't have to do because you'll be able to, to tweak all your, your color correction uh, in the actual 3D scene and not as a post-production uh, process in another department. Because that slows down the artistical process. It means that the lighter needs to do something, it will have to produce 700 layers and it's going to be sent to another department and then uh, so well, but the only thing I'd say about that is if I'm doing integration with live action, you're not going to do the lighting in the context of the integration of the live action, are you? You could. Some of it you could. Actually, with uh, image-based rendering and uh, with a background, you could do, I would say you could go 80% of the way. And, but then I agree with there's a lot of things like fake depth of field, uh, blur, but you, you'd rather do uh, in, uh, in post-production. So for some programs like uh, Massive, they sort of natively operate with a RIB file export. Are you going to look at having RIB support so you can take that we're, kind of... We're looking into opening our all relighting pipeline and architecture to support other uh, render. Why? Because a lot of studios, they are used, they already invested a lot in other solutions. So we want to... Uh, they, with that, we'll be, they'll be able to taste uh, the quality of uh, the solution we provide and still work with uh, the tools they know like RenderMan or Mentoray or potentially other renderers. Now obviously your personal experience is vast and very very well established but the company is relatively new with this product yet we've got what at least half a dozen clients using it every day in production uh -huh. today? Yeah, 
Yeah, so the thing is, that's the problem with uh, new technology. Uh, people, a lot of people, they, they are kind of afraid to use new technology. So it's up to us to first convince uh, our clients with the experience we have that we are serious people and we, at this point, the, on, the best way is really to work closely with them uh, along the way during the production and help them show, um, see uh, how easy to use or reliable it can be. Well, I was using it before, relighting a character, just uh, switching it around, and it seems to me that there is obviously a little bit of a hit when it first loads up, but then it is a very artistic, and as you said at the beginning, the results I'm seeing are incredibly detailed, right down to I, I had a character with hair and stuff, and I was really playing with the backlight on their hair. So it must be a, it must be a great tool to see in the hand of artists where they can actually start to get that sense mm -hmm. of subtlety. Yeah, but uh, the artist is going to be happy because they won't, I mean, they won't have any time left to, to go on Facebook. But uh, besides that, they're going to be happy because they won't be frustrated. Because it's a real frustration as lighter to, to do uh, to do changes and not actually see them uh, the real change or just half of it or just a simulation of it. So as an artist, I think it will help them achieve the goal much faster, uh, less frustration, and actually they're going to gain time. And I think the producer at the end going to appreciate that too. And in terms of the pricing model for a studio setting this up uh, with the farm, you're actually charging on like a basically like a per node basis, not on a core basis when it goes out to the farm. Well, actually, we have a we have a lot of different models. We are we have a rental approach. We have a per project approach. Uh, we have a, a per node approach, we have a site license approach. So you see, whatever, uh, whatever model you prefer, we're going to deal with you. So what's the URL if people want to go and um, find out So more? URL will be bakery3d.com. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. You're really welcome. Well, that's all we've got time for this episode. But coming up on FX Guide TV, I'll be bringing you a ton of cool stuff, including some great stories on The Thing, and the immortals. But more on those coming up. So until next time, I'm Angie Dale. See ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.